Hello, I'm Helena Cronin. I'm a co-director of the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science here at LSE. A big welcome to all of you, and also a, a very warm welcome to our speaker, Dr. Roy Baumeister. Roy, it's a great pleasure to have you here. You. Now, here's a question. Is there anything good about men? No, it's not my question, I wouldn't dare. It's Roy's question. It's the title of a paper of his, and now a book, that I came across some years ago. And I liked it because it dealt very refreshingly with several questions that I had been working on. And pleasingly, it converged on my own thoughts. So, all that was a long way of saying it's also a very personal pleasure to be chairing this event and to have met you at last. Roy is a world-renowned psychologist, and for very good reason. His interests are wide-ranging. His writings, both academic and popular, are very prolific. And, not least, he's got an outstanding ability to devise ingenious experiments, particularly for questions that less intrepid experimentalists might deem utterly intractable. And it's above all this invaluable skill that he's brought to bear on the subject of willpower. And he's thereby um, rescued it from those remote abandoned corners of grandmother's sayings. And he's brought it into the bright light of scientific scrutiny. Dorothy Parker, whom Roy quotes in another way delightfully in the book, um, declared, you can't teach an old dogma new tricks. Well, she hadn't reckoned with Roy's virtuosity in experimental science. He's taken grandmother's old dogma and certainly taught it new tricks. And the results have been distilled by Roy and his co-author, John Tierney, in this book. Um, John Tierney, by the way, I recommend his, very strongly, his New York Times columns. Uh, highly enjoyable, highly informative. And this book is Willpower, Rediscovering Our Greatest Strength. The program for this evening is as follows. Roy will talk for about 30 minutes and then questions from you for about 30 minutes or perhaps a bit less. And we'll finish by about 7.40. And after that, Roy will be signing copies of the book. The Twitter hashtag for this event is LSE Willpower, and the event is being recorded. And as long as there are no technical difficulties, we always have to say that, there will be a podcast available very soon online. The title of Roy's lecture is Willpower, Self-Control, self Decision Fatigue, and Energy Depletion, or perhaps just Willpower and Self-Control in Everyday Life, which is much more manageable. And that's a lecture, Roy, that I now invite you to deliver. Thank you. Well, thank you, Helena. It's a pleasure to be here, and indeed an honor to speak at uh, one of the world's great institutions for social science. And I want to thank all of you for coming out on this beautiful evening. Um, so I suppose I should start uh, by justifying the somewhat flamboyant uh, subtitle of our book, uh, that, uh, uh, What Makes This Such a Great Strength, uh, indeed arguably the greatest. Uh, well, my own uh, interest in self-control developed uh, for rather purely intellectual and scientific reasons, but uh, I've come to see that it does indeed have a, a large number of practical applications in terms of uh, uh, evidence that continues to come out about how uh, people with good self-control uh, do better in many respects. Uh, uh, studies have shown that uh, people with good self-control uh, perform better, achieve more success uh, in school, later on in work, earning more money, uh, achieving higher marks, things like that. Uh, their relationships are better, they are better liked by other people, the bosses with good self-control are rated as uh, fairer and better by their uh, subordinates and their peers. Uh, their marriages are uh, happier and last longer and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and they themselves are happier, uh, their stress uh, levels are lower in life, they uh, suffer fewer problems, uh, other signs of physical adjustment, uh, uh, their uh, attitudes about themselves, uh, staying out of trouble, um, uh, 
avoiding addiction and other sorts of behavioral problems, uh, they benefit there. Physical health, too, uh, is, uh, is better. All sorts of uh, other uh, social behaviors uh, seem to depend on uh, self-control, uh, even things like uh, crime. Uh, Goffertson and Hershey uh, published that book called A General Theory of Crime. And well, what is the general theory? Is it going to be relative deprivation or frustration and aggression? No, their conclusion was low self-control is the key to understanding uh, the criminal mind and the criminal lifestyle. And then at the far end of life, uh, people with good self-control live longer. Uh, psychology spent several decades trying to uh, figure out if anything that we do in psychology uh, predicts uh, when people die. Uh, initially, the medical establishment uh, dismissed this sort of thing, and we looked, we looked at uh, intelligence and uh, various other traits. But uh, self-control has essentially outperformed all the others. It is uh, uh, the most important uh, personality trait in terms of uh, helping you live longer. And it's, uh, it's not just some kind of accident. It's uh, because a result of some of the other things, people with good self-control uh, have you know, less likely to uh, be involved in crime or smoking cigarettes or all sorts of unhealthy uh, uh, practices that uh, that will shorten life. Uh, the last line, line two, uh, it's, it's very difficult uh, to think of any major uh, personal problem that a lot of people uh, suffer from that doesn't have at least some element of self-control failure in it. So uh, indeed, uh, just in terms of its uh, benefits to the individual, uh, but also in terms of its benefits to society, uh, self-control is extremely uh, beneficial uh, and uh, important element of, uh, of human strength. Now, what is it? Uh, how do we understand it? Um, essentially, I think of self-control as the capacity to change yourself. It's the capacity to override one response uh, and substitute another one for it. Uh, it's uh, not just uh, something you use to uh, resist uh, fattening foods or uh, succeed at diets, although it can be applied there. Uh, most broadly, uh, the four categories of things that uh, research has shown people who use self-control for, that's controlling their thoughts, as in trying to concentrate, trying to focus on uh, what they need to be doing, and by the same token, uh, trying not to be distracted by uh, uh, various other things, including the annoying song that keeps running through your mind. Uh, controlling emotions, very important. Uh, restraining uh, uh, bad emotions, stifling them, or, or cultivating positive emotions and so forth. Impulse control is perhaps best known uh, of the self-control spheres. And uh, again, it's not just uh, for uh, food and dieting, but uh, also uh, the aggressive impulses and sexual impulses and uh, you know, all sorts of impulses, uh, addictions, obviously, uh, of any sort. Uh, physical and behavioral uh, have uh, elements of self-control that, uh, that are highly relevant. And last, performance control. Uh, self-control ma makes you do your best at your work, uh, resist choking under pressure, persevere in the face of discouraging failure, uh, really perform up to your potential. Self-control is vital for that, too. Uh, uh, the, uh, in the social science literature, uh, the term self-regulation is often used instead of self-control. And I like the term regulate because it means to change, but not just any change, uh, but to change uh, towards some particular standard, a change based on an idea of how things should uh, or shouldn't be. Uh, so when the government tries to regulate how people make buildings or make sausages or whatever, uh, it doesn't just say, well, do it differently. Uh, it says, no, they have to be made up to these specifications so that uh, they will be safe. Uh, to live in or eat, uh, respectively. Uh, so in the same way, self-regulation means changing yourself based on ideas. It's uh, uh, the, the moral thing there, we call self-control the moral muscle because it's the capacity that enables yourself to change your behavior to live up uh, uh, to your moral vir virtues and uh, ideals and values there. Um, human uh, culture really depends very heavily on people's ability to control and restrain our uh, impulses. Uh, so uh, uh, indeed, you could argue that uh, the essential biological strategy of our species, uh, which is to uh, achieve survival and reproduction uh, by virtue of cooperating with each other, sharing information, sharing knowledge that's accumulated across generations, working together in interactive roles, uh, social and economic exchange, all these things. All this depends heavily on the ability to change your behavior, to live by the rules. Uh, economic trade is much more difficult when there aren't rules and people don't understand the, uh, the obligation to be fair, uh, and uh, so on and so forth. And even uh, you know, simple institutions uh, like, uh, you know, like 
universities and restaurants and so on really, uh, really depend on that. Uh, uh, if people failed to restrain their sexual impulses, as many animals do, and simply fell on each other, well, even a meeting such as like as this tonight would be uh, uh, would be profoundly difficult to uh, to have. Uh, I mean, culture as a biological strategy has been tremendously successful for our species. We have survived. We first of all. Uh, reproduced, uh, gone from one woman to, uh, uh, we'll have hit uh, eight or possibly nine billion this century. Uh, in uh, just a couple hundred thousand years, uh, no other mammal has done anything uh, like that. Uh, so, uh, and then uh, in terms of survival too, we've tripled our life expectancy by virtue of our efforts. Uh, so culture has worked really well for us. And you ask, well, if it's such a good biological strategy, why don't other species pick it up? Well, it, they don't have the psychological requirements to make it uh, operate. And to go back to the restaurant example, uh, you have to live by the rules. And uh, you know, the waitress who brings the food is not supposed to take a few bites if it looks good to her. Uh, so uh, even if she's hungry, she has to uh, restrain that. Uh, but if you hire dogs uh, for waitresses, uh, the food would arrive uh, heavily sniffed, probably licked, and uh, there would be bites taken. So. Uh, it is really the capacity to restrain our impulses uh, and uh, conform our behavior to the rules of a society and, and a social system that uh, makes uh, a culture possible. And uh, I don't want to go into the, the free will, I mean, that's a whole separate uh, talk, except uh, uh, just for a few words. The basic, you know, there are many different definitions of free will and so on, but common to many of them is the idea that you can not do one thing and do something else, and uh, doing what you feel like. Uh, uh, might need to be restrained, and so the capacity for self-control, you can substitute one response, including the first thing you feel like, or the, the obvious thing that comes to mind, and do something else instead. And so that's uh, one operational definition of freedom, and, uh, and sure enough, uh, self-control figures very prominently in the, the philosophical literature uh, talking about free will. All right. Um, now, uh, how does this uh, operate? Uh, how successful are we? Many people think oh, self-control is quite poor. Indeed, uh, one of the surveys we quote in the book of uh, several million people worldwide uh, had a list of 24 uh, different virtues that had been worked out through extensive research. And they asked people, which of these do you have and which do you lack? Well, uh, self-control uh, was dead last in the ones uh, that people said, these are, these are my top virtues. Uh, and I think it was number one at the, the list of the things I don't have that I need more of. So people think they don't really have uh, much of, uh, enough of it. But I want to say the outlook is really not so, uh, not so glum. Um, here's a study uh, that's uh, about to be published uh, where we got a couple hundred people to wear beepers as they went about their daily lives. And every time the beeper uh, went off, they were supposed to report, what are you feeling? right now, in particular, are you having a desire for anything now? And if so, how strong is the desire? What are you desiring? Is it conflict with your other goals? Are you resisting the desire? Are you going to give in to the desire? Uh, and things uh, like that. And there's a huge wealth of information in that. But uh, uh, here's uh, just one of the findings. Um, when people have a desire, if they don't resist it, uh, they perform it 70% of the time. You might think it would be 100%, but uh, uh, of course there are occasions when you desire something and uh, it can't be done. You want to play tennis and it's raining, uh, or uh, maybe you want to do something with someone or to someone and that person has, doesn't cooperate. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are reasons outside the self why, why people fail to fulfill their desires. But still, uh, a little over two-thirds of the time, uh, if they don't resist, they enact the desire. Meanwhile, if they resist it, uh, the enactment, uh, the desire drops to 17%. So that's a, a 53 percentage point difference. A uh, huge drop suggesting that, uh, yes, self-control is pretty effective. Uh, at least it's something that people use uh, every day and it makes a big difference uh, uh, in terms of the outcomes of, of acting on a desire. And it goes back to the point, uh, again, that uh, living in a civilized society, living within human culture, uh, requires you to restrain your desires. And uh, uh, surely uh, the, the people uh, in this sample, and uh, by extension, uh, most of the adults in the Western world, uh, uh, engage in this uh, with, with some success. Now, how much do they do this? Um, well, uh, we found that about half the time people were beat, they reported that they had a desire at that uh, moment. Uh, we also asked have you, if you haven't have a desire now, do you have one in the past half hour? Uh, and that made the number quite a bit higher. So about half the time, uh, while they're awake, people are uh, experiencing desire. And if you extrapolate that to assume people are awake 16 hours a day, 
Uh, that would mean that they're spending about eight hours a day in the state of desire. So that's a lot of desire. Uh, how, does, how often does self-control come in? Well, about half of those desires, uh, uh, they resist. Uh, half, maybe slightly less than half. So, um, again, three to four hours a day, uh, you're using self-control just to resist desires. And note, that's not even the only things people use uh, self-control for. Uh, there's, as I said, controlling thoughts or performance control and things like that. So uh, self-control is something people use a lot on an every daily basis. Uh, the bottom line, too, it's not perfect. Uh, there's apparently about a glorious half hour uh, per day uh, giving in after you've resisted uh, and going ahead and uh, doing whatever it was you wanted to do but thought you shouldn't. Um, all right. Uh, now, key in my own uh, work and uh, one of the core ideas in our, our book and uh, my research program uh, was that uh, people's capacity for self-control is, uh, is limited. Uh, willpower, if you think of willpower, we've uh, come to adopt the, uh, the popular term for it. We were hesitated for a while, but uh, it, uh, it, it does correspond and it, there is uh, an energy aspect to it. So uh, uh, that, that, uh, this quantity is not unlimited, nor is it a fixed, uh, uh, is your self-control a fixed uh, aspect of your character, uh, but rather it's a quantity of energy that seems to fluctuate uh, up and down during the day. Uh, hence, it's what we came to call ego depletion effects. Uh, uh, that uh, could also be called willpower depletion. Um, in uh, studies, we show that after people exert self-control in one sphere, uh, the next thing that comes along that may be totally unrelated, but if it demands if self-control is needed there, you tend to do worse uh, at the next one. And uh, uh, by now, there are quite a few experiments on it. Here's uh, one of the uh, the early ones that uh, my, my graduate students did, um, and uh, you know, showed this point. Uh, uh, for this study, uh, we told people uh, that uh, they should s not eat for three hours before the experiment uh, because we were going to test their memory for uh, uh, taste sensations. And you know, that really was not it. But uh, in psychology, if you tell people what you're going to study about them, they get very uh, uh, nervous and uh, start to change that. So uh, we mostly would have to tell them we're studying one thing and then actually study something else. So we told them, uh, you know, if we told them we're going to study your self-control, First of all, a lot of them would not have come. Uh, but uh, secondly, uh, you know, that would have produced all sorts of weird reactions. So uh, they had no idea we were interested in, in studying their self-control. We told them they're measuring taste. So they come, you know, they've skipped lunch, uh, and they're hungry. And then uh, I guess the next part was kind of mean. We set up a, uh, a microwave oven in the laboratory and cooked uh, uh, cookies or, or biscuits, as they're called over here, uh, fresh chocolate chip. And it smelled really good. Uh, so the whole laboratory was pervaded. We knew it was good because we got complaints from other people at offices on the halls. <laughs> I'm trying to do my statistics, and I'm smelling your cookies all day. Uh, so, so anyway, the person comes, uh, hasn't had lunch, uh, is hungry, and then suddenly this smells all good. And then not just that, we sit them at a table, and there's a nice a plate full of these freshly baked cookies, and in case they went into cookies, chocolates uh, arranged there too. Also on the tail, there's a, a table, there's a bowl of radishes. And in uh, crucial condition, the experimenter says, well, you've been assigned to the radish condition, uh, so your task will be to eat these radishes uh, and uh, keep your hands off the cookies there for other people in the experiment. <laughs> we left people alone for five minutes, because the idea was that they would have to resist the temptation uh, to grab a cookie. And, and, and of course, we didn't trust them, so we secretly observed them. Uh, and uh, it looked like they were tempted. There were long glances at the cookies. People picked them up and sniffed them and put them back. Uh, Drop them on the floor and put them back. So if you do these experiments yourself, don't eat the cookies yourself. Uh, but anyway, they succeeded. No one bit into the forbidden food. And everybody managed to eat the better part of a radish or two. Uh, some people say they like radishes, but apparently not when your, your nose is full of uh, chocolate chip cookies. Uh, so anyway, they succeeded. They resisted temptation. Um, and then we had two other conditions, uh, ones that were told to eat the cookies and chocolates, uh, and uh, of course a no food control condition uh, to, to skip that part of the procedure. But the ones who are interested in are the ones who had to sit there seeing those chocolates and smelling those chocolates and wanting those chocolates, uh, but instead had to make themselves eat those uh, stupid uh, radishes. So what do we do then? Uh, we took them to a different room, uh, and there's a procedure we borrowed from stress research, where you see how people, how long people go on before they give up on a difficult, uh, frustrating puzzle. Uh, uh, and this is a, actually a, you know, they're supposed to trace a, uh, a certain figure without uh, lifting their pen and without retracing any lines. 
Uh, we rigged it, of course, so it was unsolvable, because if they solved the puzzle, it ruined the experiment. Uh, you wanted to see how long they went on before they gave up. And uh, the answer, uh, these are quite large results for uh, psychology uh, laboratory findings. Uh, uh, if, you know, five minutes of resisting the temptation of chocolates and cookies took something out of them and uh, that they didn't have anymore to help themselves keep uh, working and trying at the unsolvable puzzles, and indeed knocked 10 minutes uh, or more off uh, their uh, perseverance at these uh, uh, unsolvable puzzles. So. Uh, Studies like this, and there are quite a few now with all sorts of different procedures, people controlling their attention, controlling their, uh, their emotions and things like that, uh, but uh, uh, show that uh, their willpower, their capacity to exert self-control seems to be a limited capacity uh, that gets temporarily depleted. And so hence it's the term uh, depletion uh, effects. Um, last year is a, a meta-analysis published by some scholars here in the UK uh, that uh, I had no contact with, but uh, I'm very glad to see that it uh, affirmed that now lots of laboratories have replicated these effects and it uh, uh, is a real reliable phenomenon with uh, pretty good uh, results. But it does leave the nagging question, is this just something that happens in the laboratory? Uh, so what about in everyday life? Well, we, uh, with the beeper study, it was a chance to see what's going on in everyday life. So. Uh, after we'd done the study, we figured, oh, we should have figured out a way to measure that. And then we said, well, there is a way. We can look at how often they've resisted some desire and how recently they've desisted, resisted a desire. And, uh, and it's whether they've resisted successfully or unsuccessfully doesn't matter. It's just, did they try to resist and expend some willpower in doing so? And uh, if that depletes them, then the next desire that comes along that they do resist, uh, then they should be more likely to give in. You know, their, their powers of resistance should be weakened. Uh, even though the two desires, again, would have uh, probably nothing uh, to do with each other. And uh, so uh, computed uh, statistically the, uh, their, their estimated depletion. Of course, we missed a lot of things, but, but uh, since we were just sampling them every couple hours. Uh, but still, we could construct uh, an effect. And, and sure enough, uh, look at the bottom red line. It indicates that uh, uh, people are more likely to give in uh, to whatever desire comes along to the extent that they've resisted other desires previously during the day. Now that the blue line on top shows uh, uh, it's not that uh, depleted willpower makes you do all sorts of crazy things. Uh, no, if they're not resisting, uh, whether they've resisted previously has no uh, effect whatsoever on the rate of uh, uh, acting out. But, uh, but your ability to resist subsequent desires does appear to get weakened. So this is a very welcome piece of uh, evidence. You know, not only does this ego depletion happen in the laboratory, uh, it appears to happen in uh, the everyday life of uh, uh, lots of the good citizens of uh, Würzburg, Germany, where the study was run. And uh, uh, so uh, you know, this is something apparently a lot of people go through on a, on a, on a daily basis. Uh, so again, uh, your, your, your willpower is a limited capacity based on some kind of energy that uh, you know, fluctuates during the day as it gets used, uh, gets depleted, and uh, maybe uh, weakened for a while until you can manage to replenish it. So, uh, I've used the analogy, uh, self-control or willpower works like a muscle. Uh, I've already uh, demonstrated, I think, the first point, that uh, uh, after you uh, exert uh, self-control, uh, your muscle is tired, in a sense. Uh, and so, uh, the next uh, challenge, you're uh, not, uh, you don't have as much strength there. Um, uh, two other things, and two other respects in which it resembles a muscle. Uh, one is the conservation. Uh, uh, these depletion effects are not that the person is out of willpower. You know, after five minutes in our laboratory, uh, it's not that uh, people have no willpower anymore. And uh, uh, it's uh, rather like a muscle. Once it starts to get tired, then the body naturally starts to conserve the remaining amount of energy. So if you watch an athlete, in a, say in a tennis match, uh, he or she may run after every shot at the beginning of it, but as soon as the muscles start to get tired, the person will make uh, judicious uh, calculations and say, well, I'll let that one go, I wouldn't get it anyway, uh, and save the energy for uh, the big points, uh, for the important shots uh, that are makeable. And in the same way, uh, when willpower uh, is somewhat depleted, apparently people naturally conserve what's left. So a lot of these depletion effects uh, are not that you're literally unable to resist anymore, uh, it's just the uh, you're conserving your energy in case something really important. If you make it more important, like offer the person, uh, uh, offer them $10 in one study if they could do well in the next test, well, then they can summon it up and do it, but then they're really depleted afterwards if you, if you give them another. And this, of course, is welcome news, too, because you know, people come to our laboratory studies 
uh, and then we deplete their willpower, and then we send them out into the world. And if, if they had no willpower left, well, they'd be at the mercy of anyone who wanted to uh, get them to join a cult or sell them something or uh, get them into weird sexual activities or whatever. Uh, so no, they, they still have willpower. They've just used up a, a, a bit of it. And the last way in which it resembles a muscle uh, is that uh, it gets stronger if you exercise it regularly. And this important message uh, for me to bring to it worried with the, uh, the initial stuff, if I just say, okay, willpower uh, is limited, and whenever you exert self-control, you've used up some of your energy, uh, I thought people in the audience might listen and say, oh, well, willpower is depleting, I'm never going to exert self-control. And that would not be a good socially desirable message for me to put out. Uh, so instead, I can say, uh, no, no, uh, exerting self-control is good for you. Do it on a regular basis. It will, as the Victorians say, build character. It will make you a stronger person. And there are about a dozen published studies uh, uh, showing when people do, uh, uh, in, for research purposes, fairly arbitrary uh, uh, exercises of self-control, for uh, usually for two weeks. Uh, then we bring them back in the laboratory and test them on things that have nothing to do with the exercises they do. Uh, but uh, sure enough, uh, their self-control uh, shows significant improvements on the laboratory task uh, compared to control groups. So uh, again, the muscle analogy, uh, that is an analogy, uh, but uh, it does seem, uh, seem to hold up in, uh, in a variety of important respects. Um, a couple other points to uh, emphasize. Uh, some people say, well, I have good willpower for exercise, but not so good willpower for dieting and uh, medium amount for sex and none for keeping my office clean. And so, well, that's a bit of a misconception. Uh, uh, it's the same willpower, and uh, you can <laughs> use it for all things. So uh, if your willpower is good overall, then it should be good for everything. If it's bad overall, it should be bad for everything. And uh, success will vary depending on how much you want things. It's harder to resist a strong desire than a weak one. Uh, but also, given that it's limited, people will put it into uh, some things rather than others. So yes, you will see the pattern uh, that uh, some people uh, get their work in, done in time, but uh, you know, have a terribly messy uh, 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 home and, and office. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's not that they don't have enough self-control to, uh, uh, to manage uh, neatness. They could do neatness if that were the important thing, but uh, uh, they're ch choosing to channel their energy into uh, doing their work and meeting the deadlines uh, rather than uh, keeping the desk clean or vice versa. Um, so uh, research literature has identified these major spheres, as I said, controlling thoughts, feelings, impulse control, uh, and task performance. It's the same uh, set of willpower. It's the same resource used for all these different things. And most of our experiments will have people deplete their willpower doing one of those things uh, and then measure it in something else. So in, in the study uh, uh, that I described with the radishes, we depleted them, uh, re resisting a, an impulse to uh, eat food they've been forbidden. Uh, and then we measured their, uh, their perseverance in uh, task performance uh, terms. Uh, you can pick anyone and show the effects on, uh, on, on any other one. Uh, that uh, seems to be fairly well replicated pattern. Um, now, if self-control were uh, just, uh, if willpower were just used for self-control, uh, given the importance of self-control, that would make it already a really important uh, a part of the self. Uh, but it turns out it's used for other things too. And, and to me, this uh, was, was quite, uh, uh, an eye-opening uh, set of uh, uh, findings uh, when it started to come out. Making choices and decisions uh, uses willpower. And uh, we've shown this uh, you know, the first uh, study, for example, we had people uh, look at a lot of consumer products. Some people just looked at the products and rated, did they like them, and have you used such a product recently? Other people saw them in pairs and, and made choices between them. Well, the ones, and then we tested how long uh, they could hold their hand in ice water, which is a classic laboratory test of self-control, because uh, you, know, you want to pull uh, pull it out because it's cold and unpleasant, but you have to force yourself to do it. Well, uh, making choices took something out of them, and the people who had uh, made the choices quit uh, significantly faster uh, on the ice water task than the people who looked at all the same, thought about all the same projects, uh, but didn't uh, make any uh, choices among them. So uh, it goes both ways. Uh, after making choices, self-control is impaired. Uh, going the other way around, after uh, after exerting self-control, uh, your decision-making is compromised, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that in a moment. Uh, we have also some unpublished data that initiative, that being active instead of passive, that, that taking action uh, also uses the same resource. That when we depleted people's uh, uh, self-control and willpower, uh, for example, one of the studies was experiments. Well, for the next part of the experiment, the uh, computer uh, will tell you what to do. Uh, so just follow the prompts on the computer, follow the instructions there, and uh, 
And that's it. The experimenter leaves the room, or hit start on the computer, leaves the room. The computer just goes to blue screen and sits there. Uh, and so uh, we measure how long does the subject just sit there staring at this uh, blue screen without doing anything. And uh, um, we did eventually, uh, I mean, if they didn't get out within 20 minutes, we went and caught them. Like, nobody's still <laughs> waiting in our laboratory. Uh, but anyway, uh, again, the people who depleted their willpower in the self-control task uh, were more passive. They more likely to just sit there indefinitely. Uh, indeed, I think they sat about twice as long. Uh, uh, in terms of decision fatigue, so uh, uh, you deplete your willpower making decisions, um, and uh, uh, you're looking at the other way around. If uh, you exert self-control, what are the effects on decision making? Uh, there, these are some of the major ones here. One is uh, people prefer to postpone and avoid decisions. You know, many decisions you can you, know, you can choose which of these two things you want to buy, or you can decide not to buy either one and, and leave it for later. Uh, and so on. Uh, the uh, people's willpower depleted are big postponers. They'd rather not uh, uh, not choose and uh, leave it till later, or just not pick anything. Uh, the less compromising, uh, the uh, uh, decision-making literature uh, suggests that compromise is an intellectually demanding sort of uh, uh, decision because you have to trade off different dimensions. So, for example, if there's price and quality, higher price brings higher quality, and uh, well, you want quality, but you don't want to spend uh, the, the whole whole savings on, uh, on this particular item. So you want to figure out what's the right point and, and compromise some degree between uh, saving money and getting the best. Uh, when people are depleted, that goes out the window. That's either give me the cheapest or give me the best. Uh, but that uh, work that's done to trade off, that's, that stops. Uh, people are more likely to take the default option, whatever it is. Uh, you notice uh, car dealers seem to have worked this out on their own so that uh, they have you make a long series of choices about your new car. Uh, there's a lovely study done with Audi dealers where there are like 200 different kinds of fabric uh, that you can choose uh, for your interior and you, you pour and struggle, you use up your willpower doing that uh, and then they hit you with the uh, more difficult decisions, uh, especially the ones where the, the standard option, the default option is really expensive because people you know, have used up their willpower and say, oh, I'll just take it whatever, whatever standard <laughs> and they spend quite a bit more money uh, doing it that way. Uh, decisions also become more impulsive, more self-indulgent. Uh, People spend more money when their ego is depleted. Uh, they'll pay more money for the same items, uh, and so on. And, and lastly, there's some evidence that uh, irrational bias will creep into decision-making. Uh, when people have their willpower, they can resist the bias and, and focus and figure things out and do its best. But once their willpower is depleted, they're more likely to succumb to these, uh, these sorts of biases. Um, OK, uh, a couple more points uh, before I uh, finish here. Uh, we've looked at uh, people who are good at uh, self-control, and uh, uh, to go back to the Beeper study, I mean, one of the straightforward predictions is if you've got self-control, what do you use it for? For resisting uh, desires and temptations, of course. So we assume that people who, who scored higher in self-control and our, our trait measure of self-control, that they, they would uh, uh, more often uh, resist uh, their desires than other people. I suspect uh, nine, if not 10 out of 10 social scientists would have made that same prediction. We certainly did, but are statistically significant in the opposite direction. Uh, people with high self-control are less likely to resist their desires. Well, what's uh, going on there? Um, it looks like they have fewer problematic desires. And this has led to a change the way we think that self-control operates. The, the, the naive and intuitive assumption is that you use self-control for these heroic uh, single sorts of acts. Uh, use your willpower to resist the, uh, the ultimate temptation at the, at the crucial moment. Uh, but no, it seems that people with good self-control set up their lives in ways that avoid the problems so they don't have to uh, depend on their willpower to bail them out. And so uh, the really effective use of self-control appears to be uh, through uh, developing good habits. Uh, and then you can run your daily life on automatic pilot and then go by the habits. So in the book we call this playing offense, not defense. If you wait to play defense to have it uh, bail you out or uh, save you from disaster, uh, well, then you're risky because maybe when that comes along, your willpower will be low. But if you set up your life to run in well-ordered, uh, safe, uh, reliable manners, then you have a fewer, uh, a fewer such problems. We also find uh, people with self-control uh, suffer less from guilt. Uh, they have less stress in life. Because <coughs> uh, this is good too. Because the uh, some people have a stereotype. Well, people with good self-control, they just don't have any fun. They uh, uh, they might uh, look good on paper, but they have this sort of grim, glum existence, uh, uh, shutting off all their temptations and feeling guilty all the time about very minor things. Well, no, uh, they actually have less guilt. The people who feel guilty are the people with low self-control who are periodically indulging in these problem desires, and then they're sorry afterwards. 
so uh, people with good self-control uh, start to manage their lives, and, and as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they are happier, the higher scores, uh, both on the moment-to-moment -moment, uh, emotional life uh, and on their overall life satisfaction. It appears to pay off, uh, pay off very well. Or to put this in a more graphic form, uh, here's uh, one of the classic images of uh, self-control challenges. This is Ulysses, Odysseus, uh, on the deck of his ship, uh, sailing home from the siege of Troy, and tempted by the sirens with their beautiful music. And of course, the, uh, the mythological uh, story goes that uh, uh, the sirens would sing these sweet songs, and the sailors would want to hear them, and would steer closer and uh, smash up their ships on the rocks. Uh, so we think of uh, heroic uh, Odysseus uh, uh, struggling to resist this, uh, this uh, with the aid of a few uh, uh, minor uh, techniques there. The, the sailors have all stopped up their ears so they can't hear the music. Uh, Odysseus himself wanted to hear it, so he uh, had himself tied to the mast so he couldn't do anything bad. And apparently he thought a bit of cross-dressing in women's clothes would uh, be helpful. I don't, I don't know what that had to do with it. Uh, but uh, one way or another, he's uh, struggling to resist the allure of this uh, wonderful but dangerous music. So this is our image of temptation, but it turns out the person with good self-control is not the one most likely to resist that. The person with good self-control went home by a different route uh, <laughs> and uh, avoids the problem entirely. All right, uh, two more uh, quick things. Uh, um, in terms of, uh, you know, we started out using this term called ego depletion, energy depletion, gradually came around to using the term willpower. Uh, but uh, all this to us was a metaphor. It, it looked like something was depleted uh, when they resisted the chocolates and that, that, that uh, you know, then they didn't have something inside them to resist the, uh, uh, the uh, to make themselves uh, continue working on the unsolvable puzzles, uh, studies like that. Um, but uh, no, it, uh, it's not just a metaphor. It appears to be strongly tied into physiological processes in the body, uh, in the brain. I'm, I'm not a brain expert, uh, but uh, uh, just in very simple terms, in the brain evolved from back to front, and the, the desiring part is in the back, the resisting part is in the front. Uh, so the, uh, the frontal and prefrontal, uh, you know, superfrontal uh, cortex, uh, that seems to be the parts in the brain that are responsible for uh, getting this done. Uh, what I work has uh, shown uh, not so much in the brain, but in the whole body, uh, uh, levels of glucose seem to be important. And we, we stumbled on this somewhat by accident. Uh, but uh, glucose is a chemical in the bloodstream, carries energy. It doesn't mean uh, purely sugar. It's, uh, uh, it can be made from any sort of food that you eat that has a uh, nutritional value. Um, and uh, so uh, it, uh, it carries energy to the muscles, uh, to the, uh, and, it, and particularly to the brain. So it's, it's fuel for the brain, the neurotransmitters that enable the synapses, uh, the brain cells to fire. Uh, neurotransmitters are made out of uh, blood glucose. The glucose itself doesn't go into the brain. Anyway, uh, that appears to be a big part of what uh, willpower is in, in physiological terms. Uh, we found that after people exert self-control, uh, their levels of glucose in their blood have dropped. It, it seems like they burn off some of the fuel. Uh, so you can think of uh, self-control as one kind of advance or demanding uh, sort of uh, psychological activity that uh, consumes uh, a lot of this uh, fuel. We've also found, our work and, and plenty of others has shown that when levels of glucose are low, uh, then self-control is poor and people uh, tend to uh, fail and break down uh, in self-control on that. Uh, also, people who might have high, people like diabetics who have high levels of uh, a glucose circulating in their blood, but uh, the body can't make any use of it, uh, that, uh, that likewise uh, leads to uh, issues and problems of self-control. Uh, and last, uh, we've shown that when we do these uh, depletion experiments where we uh, use up people's willpower in one task and then give them another task, um, for this, the, the, the chocolate chip cookies one is not the best example because they could get some uh, glucose there. But uh, uh, in, if you take two, two other sorts of tasks, have people first restrain their emotions and then measure their, uh, their task performance or their physical stamina or something like that. Uh, if we can replenish their blood glucose in between the two tasks, then the performance is improved. And the procedure uh, we come around to use for this is very simple are in the south of the United States where it's hot. So we give people a glass of lemonade when they arrive there, uh, and we sweeten it either with uh, sugar or with a uh, diet sweetener like Splenda. Uh, the lemonade tastes equally good, people are equally happy, can't really tell the difference, but the one gives you a dose of glucose, uh, the other doesn't. And sure enough, uh, 
uh, it's this, another advantage of this procedure, it can be done totally double blind, neither the experimenter nor the participant uh, knows what kind of lemonade uh, was being served, uh, but uh, in the end we untangle that and look it up, the people who got the sugar in their lemonade, uh, their willpower is, uh, is back up despite, despite the depletion uh, from the first task, whereas the uh, equally tasty lemonade with Splenda, uh, people who got that uh, continue to show these depletion effects of uh, poor self-control afterwards. Now, I'm not unmindful of the irony of consuming a lot of sugar to uh, improve your self-control. And uh, this is laboratory stuff. Don't try this at home. Um, we, use la we use sugar in the laboratory uh, because it works really fast. And we only have people there for a short period of time. Uh, so we need something. Uh, but it, it's a quick up and quick down. Uh, uh, so I don't want people to go home thinking I've got to have a lot more sugar to bolster my willpower. Uh, anything you eat, including eating healthy food that you burn over a longer period of time, is probably a much uh, better way of uh, uh, of replenishing the glucose. But anyway, uh, the, the important point is that uh, uh, your success at these psychological operations, and even in one of our studies, your success at rational thought, uh, you know, some of the, the bounded rationality is bounded partly by uh, what you uh, had for breakfast and what was in your lemonade. Um, so um, uh, these things are uh, tied together, and uh, they do uh, depend on the, uh, the, the levels of uh, glucose that they have. All right. Um, in terms of uh, uh, how the glucose goes, I want to say uh, we found that it's uh, relevant to self-control. Uh, also, it's something that will be used for physical exertion. So uh, uh, after severe physical exertion, burned up your, willpo your willpower, uh, your self-control should be impaired. Uh, but there are other things that use a lot of the glucose that will also then affect your ability to think rationally, to make uh, optimal decisions, and to exert self-control. The immune system, uh, this is not my work, but I. Uh, read this in the work of others, the immune system is a, is a big, although highly variable, consumer of glucose. Uh, so uh, when your body is fighting off a cold, um, it's, uh, you, your immune system goes into high gear and it starts consuming a lot of this. And what you'll find is that your rational thinking will not be as uh, sharp as usual. Uh, your self-control will be impaired because, again, this is a limited resource. Uh, and even though you may not have used self-control in other tasks that day, your body is taking it uh, uh, for uh, another, uh, another purpose. Uh, it uh, supports the conventional wisdom that uh, uh, when you start to get sick, uh, the best thing to do is just forget about work and everything else and just go, go to bed and lie there and let your body use all its energy to, uh, to fight the illness. Uh, this news to me because I always force myself to power through and keep working and then I go back and look at the work and it was garbage. But uh, so it turned out the most efficient thing is just give in to it, go and sleep, uh, let your body use the energy for that, and then uh, get up in a day uh, or two later, uh, and then you'll feel better and get back to work. Uh, I also mentioned uh, in a paper last year, uh, premenstrual syndrome, that's uh, afflicts some women. That too uh, appears to be a glucose-based thing. The, uh, the, during that luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, the body needs a lot more energy than usual, uh, so it starts uh, pulling off uh, glucose from other activities. And, uh, on average, women start eating a bit more at this uh, time of the month, but they don't eat enough more to make up for the increased metabolic demand. So essentially, they're in a state of chronic, uh, uh, it's not exactly depletion, but of chronic low glucose uh, for those few days. And, and that appears to fit very well with what's known about uh, premenstrual syndrome. It doesn't cause particular behaviors. It just prevents the normal common sense and self-restraint uh, that people use to restrict these things. Uh, and undermines those. Um, and last point, uh, what does it feel like? I mean, given that the state of depletion is important and contributes to a lot of things, it would be good to know, oh, my willpower is down. I better not make any important decisions now, and, and, and so forth. Um, well, unfortunately, the news is not so good here. There is no particular feeling that it has. Uh, many studies have found uh, behavioral effects. Uh, but uh, weak or no uh, subjective reports. And uh, oh, we ask people, how do you feel about this? And uh, you know, rate on many things. Sometimes there's an effect that people say they're tired when they're depleted, but often not. You get plenty of depletion effects before people have any sense of, of being tired. So it, 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 there's no feeling that you can rely on to tell you when your willpower is down, all the more reason to understand the different demands uh, and, and so forth that, uh, uh, that draw on this resource. Uh, but uh, uh, one helpful sign, perhaps, is, uh, is uh, some research that's uh, under review right now. Uh, it looks like depletion turns up the volume on life in general. Everything you feel a bit more strongly. Uh, to put it in uh, some uh, brain terms, and the, 
the, the brain uh, operations here are uh, very uh, interesting and being studied in the, uh, some of the, uh, the top brain labs. And uh, uh, that uh, the brain has control functions and evaluation functions. When you stop doing the control functions as much because you're depleted, uh, the evaluation functions seem to come through more strongly. And so uh, people feel everything. It's uh, you know, the first study we had people watch an upsetting film clip uh, and then rate their emotional state. Well, the people who were depleted by a prior task, they, uh, they reacted more strongly to it. They were more upset by the uh, upsetting uh, uh, film while it was on the nuclear waste on wildlife. Uh, they said, well, does it just, just produce these bad feelings? Well, uh, no. Uh, in another study, we showed people pictures of puppies and other positive things. Well, they like those better if they were depleted. So the goods are nicer, the bads are worse when you're depleted. And it wasn't just associations. You know, everybody likes puppies. We had people rate Chinese characters that they'd never seen before. Or if they'd seen Chinese, we gave them Arabic characters. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the ones they liked, they liked more. The ones they didn't like, they, uh, they hated more. Uh, so it seems to uh, produce uh, polarization, and in particular, desires too are felt more strongly. So uh, the, the depleted state hits you with possibly a double whammy. Your resistance is weakened, and your desires feel uh, stronger than usual. Uh, so it's no wonder that uh, people are more likely to give in. Uh, for example, in one study we had, uh, the measure was the, the ice water task. Uh, we showed the people who depleted their uh, their self-control, uh, they quit faster on that, but well, that had been shown many times, but that they felt the, uh, the water more painful, that was a new thing. So uh, what depletion feels like, it's, it feels like the, everything has been intensified. So to conclude, uh, this capacity uh, that we have for controlling ourselves uh, depends on this limited energy source, uh, the folk notion of willpower, although certainly incomplete and doesn't tie into decision-making and some of these other things, uh, it's not entirely wrong, and perhaps uh, some Victorian notions of building character and so on deserve another uh, perhaps more positive look. Uh, as I said, it's used for self-control, but also for other things, initiative, active responding choice, uh, we think uh, planning, uh, things like that as well. Uh, and in terms of the greatest human strength, uh, well, being good at this is, is vital, uh, not only for uh, success for the individual, uh, but also for enabling us uh, to uh, function in, in culture and enabling culture itself to work its magic uh, to make life better uh, for all of us. And so, uh, indeed, uh, it becomes an essential part of what specifically makes us human. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for a really uh, interesting and very enjoyable lecture. Um, now to questions from the audience, from all of you. Um, please wait for the roving microphone to come before you start to speak. And please keep your question brief. It's unfair to everybody if one person hogs the time. So use some self-control on that one. And be sure to ask a question and not make a statement, particularly don't make a lecture. And tell us your name and where you come from, unless you really don't want to do so. <laughs> right, questions. There's one over there straight away. Hi, my name is Jacob Wright, and I was interested to find out if Professor Baumeister thought there was any parallels between his findings and Daniel Kahneman's System 1, System 2 theory. Okay, uh, yes, uh, the uh, self-control is, is a more the, the System 2 sort of thing. It's uh, conscious control uh, exerting the restraint, uh, the way he explains it. You know, system 1 is very fast and gives a quick, impulsive sort of answer. System 2 comes along later and corrects it and says, well, I... And system one says, I, I want this. System two says, well, but that's illegal. Uh, so uh, yes, I, I, I see those as, uh, as quite compatible. One here, right at the front. And the next one will be uh, the woman at the end of the row there. Here, so she has the microphone. Peter Sosu from the uh, LSE. Um, I'm wondering to what extent uh, decision fatigue um, it is a specific thing that you can uh, identify rather than being a sort of component of general men mental fatigue. So, for example, uh, the way you described it, it, it arises from people having to exercise willpower and make decisions. But if you gave people a different task, like, say, mathematical puzzles, 
would they um, not exhibit decision fatigue in the same way? Uh, they might. Uh, the, the term mental fatigue is, uh, I, I'm not sure there's a formal or explicit definition of that. It's sort of a general concept that uh, the cognitive psychologists have, have tossed around. Uh, so uh, certainly there'd be substantial overlap. Now there may be some, some non-overlapping aspects. Uh, in particular, you raised the example of, using, of doing mathematical uh, problems and puzzles. Uh, we find that may or may not be depleting. Uh, when you, say, do a multiplication problem, uh, you follow a specific set of procedures. And so if people do that, uh, um, as long as you know what they are and follow them, that doesn't really seem to require a lot of management by the self, so that may not deplete people. Uh, my guess is that number problems might not be depleting, whereas word problems would be. <laughs> because with a word problem, you have to take and transform the words into numbers. And that, that takes effort. That is, uh, that is more depleting. Uh, likewise, if you had to do them in your head uh, without benefit of paper, that probably takes more, more uh, exertion of the sort that would deplete the self. Um, so uh, I, I won't say that they are uh, the same thing, but a certain significant overlap. Right. Um, the you're the next yeah. one, but could you also give the microphone to that person, okay. the woman in black over there? The Old Testament says, who is the hero? Not one that conquers cities, but one that can conquer and subdue his inclination. And you're saying that we need self-control in order to tone down the desire. And my question is, don't we need desire to tone down urges so that we can think clearly? Well, uh Desires and urges are, uh, I'm using those terms as if uh, they're essentially the same thing. Uh, the, the biblical quotation was a, a nice one. I appreciate that. Um, so, we're not saying we should get rid of urges and desires altogether. I mean, bodies have desires because we need, they are for things that we need to survive. It's, this is not a discussion. Okay. Could you just... Okay, uh, well... Uh, that becomes a semantic issue, but uh, we're talking about the basic phenomenon of wanting to do something, wanting to have something. Uh, so I call that desires and urges and, and use those. Uh, we're essentially the impulse to do one thing and then uh, self-control would be about uh, restraining that. We don't get rid of desires with self-control. We prevent ourselves from acting on them. So in the addiction literature, uh, as I've been struggling to uh, master the last uh, year or so. It looks like if you're addicted to alcohol or cigarettes or whatever, uh, it's not that uh, whatever changes occur in the brain, you want something very much. You can't stop wanting it, but you can stop acting on it. And, and most of the cigarette smokers I know say, well, yes, it's, it's not that strong a desire. I could always resist any particular cigarette, but I keep wanting it, and I keep having these desires and impulses. Uh, Julia Morley, LSE. Um, I just wondered what the effect of positive feedback is on the depletion of, of willpower and how that ties into desires in the future. All right. Uh, we wondered, you know, is this just a matter of uh, perceiving yourself? Uh, we, did, we did one early study where we gave people the first self-control task to deplete them. We told half of them you'd done a great job and half of them you'd done a terrible job uh, by random assignment. So it was purely just to see what effect feedback. And to my surprise, it had no effect whatsoever. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, it's really independent of uh, these self-efficacy or perceiving yourself as competent or things like that. That said, I also have to think that, uh, you know, if you're raising children or something like that, or training young people, that giving positive feedback uh, in the long run is going to uh, attune people to the importance of, of self-control. Uh, I started off my research studying self-esteem, and uh, we hoped self-esteem would produce all these benefits, and self-esteem turned out to be kind of a flop. Uh, so one of the messages I tell people is if you're working with young people or having children, ever forget about self-esteem, concentrate on self-control. It's, 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 it's much more important. And then people say, well, how, how do you instill self-control in, in, a, in a child? And there are a variety of things you can do. I mean, set clear rules, punish uh, and reward very consistently. But reward is important there, too. Uh, so the, the new, unfortunately, the self-esteem movement in the U.S. has bred an attitude among parents that, well, I should never criticize my uh, child or set any limits because it might damage his self-esteem. That's really unfortunate, especially if self-control is the more important uh, uh, 
thing to develop. Uh, so praise uh, and uh, criticism uh, delivered in a timely manner is best for learning. Uh, and uh, even just being aware that this is what you want to do, you want to take the attention, uh, take the time to notice when your child does do self-control and praise that. And say, you, you could have gotten upset there or thrown something a tantrum, but you didn't, and so that that was good. Uh, so you know, I, I, I do believe in, in reward as uh, encouraging and cultivating this trait, but it, it is not uh, responsible at all for the uh, uh, effects that we are getting, as far as we can tell. And the next one's there, and after that. This person, you're right next to here. Hi there, my name is Satyan Rao. Um, I once attended a talk by this uh, brand consultant uh, manager. And she, said that, um, <laughs> she said that there was a study which suggested men were more likely to lose a negotiation after 12 p.m. So I was wondering if there were any standards that were established based on findings that um, men lost self-control at a certain uh, stage during the day and women lost the self-control at a certain stage during the day as well, when they depleted their resistance, basically. <laughs> Wait, uh, would you repeat that question? Yes, I, I can. Um, <laughs> if there were any standards uh, that findings suggested whereby men and women depleted their resistance uh, at a particular time during the day, when they were more um, likely to lose a negotiation, for example? Okay, uh, the short answer is no. Uh, in fact, we looked in the Beeper study for any sort of time of day effects. Uh, and, you know, there are effects of relevant behaviors. People have. Uh, a lot more desires for alcohol on Saturday night than Sunday morning. Sunday morning, they're often sorry. Uh, but uh, there's no simple uh, uh, day pattern. It seems to depend on, on the demands uh, across the course of the day, uh, how, many, how much you expend your willpower and various things. Uh, and it depends uh, also on replenishing it. Uh, there was a study published about a year ago on the, the judges, uh, parole judges in Israel. Uh, tracking their decisions across the course of the day. And it, it was a lovely overall depletion effect. Uh, you know, the, the parole decision is whether to send the man back to prison or let him out into society. Doing the latter is riskier for the judge because uh, uh, if the man goes out and commits another crime, then it reflects badly on the judge. So the easy thing is to send him back to prison. Uh, but, you know, many of these men have made an effort to reform and so on. So uh, early in the day, the judges really seemed to take them seriously and uh, gave parole at a fairly high rate. Uh, the less the day wore on, the rate of giving parole went down, 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 with a couple exceptions. In mid-morning, uh, the judges got a break uh, to have a sandwich and a piece of fruit, and then uh, they replenished their glucose, and suddenly uh, they started giving parole again. Uh, the, same, uh, the same with lunch. I think if you were the last person, if I remember correctly, the last person to come up for parole before lunch, your chances of, of being let out of prison were about 15% or were negligible. You were the first one after lunch, it was something like uh, 60 or 70%. Uh, so and, you know, these are essentially identical cases, but uh, uh, so yeah, anyway, the point is uh, these judges are working hard. They're using a lot of willpower uh, on case after case after case, and that does wear them down across the day. But uh, you know, replenishing uh, the, the glucose levels does seem to make a substantial difference. Um, the woman in pink after this person over here. Thank you. Uh, Mark Amphiligoff, I work in areas of digital change. I think leading on from what you were saying about the judges there, I was wondering if there are any thoughts on practical applications of these findings to help either improve consistency of decision making, um, identify techniques that can be applied and, and also maybe after the fact perhaps to, to look at whether decisions have been right or uh, consistent. So, uh, particularly perhaps in, uh, in the more commercial sector or other public sectors. Well, yes, there's certainly practical uh, applications. Uh, uh, there are all sorts of things. I think uh, there have been some fascinating studies, including some here in the United Kingdom, uh, where they took over prisons and changed the diet that the, uh, uh, the prisoners ate and uh, you know, by feeding them healthier food uh, rather than the, uh, the, the junk food that's usually served in prison. Uh, they significantly cut the uh, disciplinary problem rates uh, within, the, within the prison. Uh, they also, I think there was a Finnish study that showed they could, uh, uh, by measuring the, the guy's glucose metabolism when he was let out of prison, they could predict uh, uh, whether he's going to be a recidivist and be back in prison in a few years with uh, reasonably good accuracy. I mean, there's some reason to be able to predict that. So uh, uh, that applies to, more generally, uh, I think you understand how willpower works. You, you know if you have a big decision to make, uh, you want to do the best you can to make sure you're in a, a fully empowered uh, uh, state to do that. Uh, if you've already made a lot of 
uh, other decisions and so on, and he explains why uh, marital problems can have a detrimental effect on performance at work, uh, and uh, demanding work, uh, coping with stress and so on, can uh, turn around and uh, uh, undermine people's uh, ability to be nice to their spouse in the evening and produce marital problems. Uh, again, it's a limited uh, uh, supply of energy. A guy I know who's a marriage therapist says, uh, You've been telling people for years, you know, go home early, uh, don't leave it all at the office. And he, he didn't know why until he heard our research. But he said, well, if they work till uh, 8 or 9 o'clock at night, uh, they've used up all their willpower, and then they go home. And the first uh, provocation, uh, the first thing that doesn't uh, run the right way, they can't control their, uh, their, their, their emotions, and they get into a huge argument. They save some of your willpower to make yourself be nice to your, uh, uh, to be nice to your spouse. So uh, uh, being well-fed and being rested is the, is the proper state uh, in, in which to make, uh, to make good decisions and to exert self-control. So. Um, you'll be after this. Yes, I'd like to thank you, uh, Monica Magdalena Berber. I'd like to thank you for answering my emails on mind control experiments, which the willpower okay. <coughs> comes in for the victims, of course. Okay. And before they commit suicide, or if they are to, to resist suicide. It's, it's really, anyway. And can you think of, um, <coughs> can you think of uh, any well-known, very well-known personality who's managed to achieve self-control after a total breakdown? Because the normal story is, the, is the usual story is that people like Marilyn Monroe lose their battle with themselves, really because of the pressure from the society, hmm. so-called friends even. Michael I think you made your points. Yeah. There must you? be some, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just not well enough sorry? familiar with the, uh, the celebrities to uh, be able to, uh, <laughs> uh, to, to produce a good example uh, right now. Or so, just uh, any celebrity. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there must be some. <laughs> uh, Adrian Sack, I'm from London. Um, recent literature has proposed a link between self-control and IQ, or the G factor of general intelligence. Uh, Steven Pinker recently spoke about a potential moral Flynn effect. To what extent do you think that uh, the programming of the prefrontal lobes, or let's say IQ or intelligence, might help with self-control? To what extent is that uh, a metacognition which enables Odyssean thinking, or, or is it just uh, horsepower? Well, um, intelligence and self-control are the two traits that psychology has found that uh, uh, produce success in a broad uh, set of you know, walks of life. And just about any career, the smarter person uh, does better than the less intelligent person, and the person with better self-control will outperform the one with poorer control. Um, now, intelligence we've been at for a much longer time, uh, so it kind of is given uh, first, uh, first in line effect. Uh, and hence the question tends to be, well, can we just explain all self-control based on intelligence? Um, I've been more interested in work that goes the other way and saying, well, some of the benefits credited to intelligence are really self-control effects. Uh, we've published some studies that if we deplete people's self-control with tasks like resisting the, uh, uh, the radish or shutting an arbitrary thought of your mind or, or whatever, uh, that then people show a significant drop in their IQ test uh, performance. So some of what shows up in your intelligence score and will be counted as intelligence is really about uh, self-control. Uh, and uh, in, in, now not all intelligent functions are uh, encumbered. IQ tests, for example, often have vocabulary tests. Uh, and you think, well, do you need to be smart to know the meaning of dilatory or something like that? Uh, but you know, no, but it, it's true. It's a valid test because smart people know more words than stupid people. Um, well, that kind of thing, that's an automatic response, and that is not impaired when people are depleted. Their vocabulary does not uh, diminish. Any sorts of the automatic uh, responses, general knowledge and so on, those are, the, those are there. Your mind, the automatic mind is working, it goes back to the system one, system two question. The automatic processes are, are intact and unaffected, but the controlled processes, uh, so if you have to do logical reasoning, that sort of thing uh, drops precipitously when you're depleted. Uh, extrapolation tasks, so I, so I give you the, 
population of Munich and you're supposed to estimate the population of Vienna or something like that, those things get worse when people are depleted. So uh, the, the kind of thoughts where you have to effortfully manage and, and go from one step to another, that's the sort of thing uh, that gets worse. I know that's not exactly the, the, the question uh, you're asking, but, uh, um, but there is overlap between uh, IQ and, and self-control, some overlap. However, I think uh, it's not appropriate to say, well, that's all really about intelligence, that, that self-control is sometimes more important. There's some public studies even that, uh, uh, in one by uh, Seligman and uh, Angela Duckworth, that uh, self-control actually outperformed uh, intelligence measures uh, in predicting uh, school performance, if you, you've got a good uh, measure of self-control. So they're, uh, they're, they're both uh, really important. The difference, the important difference to me, and, and I, no disrespect, uh, intelligence is a immensely important variable and uh, very important in the history of psychology, but a uh, crucial difference is we've been trying for a century, we don't really know much about how to improve intelligence, that producing lasting changes doesn't seem to work that well, but we can build up self-control, so uh, uh, it is something uh, with a child or with an adult, uh, you can still cultivate and make that person a stronger, better person, uh, whereas making that person a more intelligent person, uh, is uh, chances are slim. Hi there, uh, Sam from London. Um, I'm a personal trainer and I um, know the importance of rest after a good workout um, and the way that you talk about willpower, how it depletes and you have to re sort of recover from it to, to get it back. Um, in a world where temptation is around the corner, like absolutely everywhere, how do people go about strengthening their willpower if they don't have any rest to recover from using their willpower again and again and again? Uh, you want me to solve the world's problems? Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, clearly you're right. The, the, the bad news is uh, we have more temptations than ever before, and uh, they're much more readily available and coming at us from all sources. But the good news is uh, we do have... Uh, a greater capacity to under first to understand how uh, uh, self-control and willpower work, so we can manage our resources better. Uh, there are also uh, increasing number of uh, external uh, things that can can help, uh, external sorts of tools. Uh, the internet uh, is an endless source of temptation, and uh, you can certainly wreck your budget for the year uh, in a 10-minute uh, shopping spree there. But the internet also offers opportunities to uh, to give you you feedback and to help you. Uh, control yourself uh, well. I, I, I don't do these things much myself, but my co-author, John Tierney, uh, loves all these gadgets and things. He uh, signed up. There's a mint.com, uh, which will keep track of uh, your money and your credit cards and uh, give you regular feedback. I mean, uh, it used to be you carried around money in your wallet, and when it was gone, you stopped spending. Uh, so uh, that, you know, that was uh, some of the restraint. But with credit cards, now people spend and spend, and they don't have any idea how much they've spent until the bill comes at the end of the month. Well, these people can give you fairly immediate feedback that uh, this week you're spending a lot more on, on drinks and restaurants than uh, normal, maybe you want to watch it. Uh, and so you can say, well, it was worth it, I needed extra drinks because my mother-in-law was visiting or, or something. But, uh, <laughs> but you could also say, uh, oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's getting out of line, I need to rein that in. Uh, so there's that, uh, there's, uh, you mentioned personal training, uh, you know, people can uh, use feedback, where these things where they track how many, uh, 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 steps you walk during the day, uh, transmit it directly to your computer, broadcast it to your friends who are also keeping track, and so they say, ah, I beat you yesterday. Uh, so uh, there are a variety of, 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 of new tools. So uh, we're kind of positive on the, the future of self-control, uh, despite the uh, increasing temptations. Thank you for very, very good questions. I'm really sorry that I have to bring this to an end, because Roy's got to go off because he's speaking on Radio 3 tonight and has to get to the studio and night waves at 9.45 if you're interested. But first of all, a very important announcement is that his book is on sale now directly outside the theater here and he is going to be walking up there to go and sign books and a queue will be organized for him to sign the books. So could you please be sure just to let him through to get out there and thank you, Roy, again for an excellent lecture and thank you. Thank you.